passage this morning is from John 15. Hear now God's word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the, in the, in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. If you pick your head up at all to look around at the cultural conversation that's happening around us, whether in a magazine or books or studies or on online media, it won't be long before you see something that talks about happiness. Talks about the nature of happiness and why are some people more happy than others. There's comparisons of countries, right? Which country is most happy? It's usually a Scandinavian one and why. Why are the unhappy countries like the United States unhappy when they have so much, right? This is being discussed a great deal because in general in the West we recognize that we're not very happy and we're trying to figure out why and then as a result to make ourselves more happy. Now... You uh, may have seen that part of this conversation of late has been particularly focused on, uh, you could say, our clutter. Right? And the basic notion is this, that we live lives of such wealth and freedom and opportunity that we tend to acquire a great deal. And the more we acquire, the less happy that we are. So one of the most popular uh, documentaries on Netflix is Minimalism, a documentary about important things. And uh, you may be familiar with uh, the ridiculously best-selling book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, in which you're supposed to go through everything in your house and pick it up and say, does this bring me joy? And I'm not sure what that is entirely, but if your answer is no, then you get rid of it. And you pare down to the essentials so that you aren't living in this incredibly cluttered Place. And it, this is, you know, almost an article a week comes out on this basic life hack. 
Get rid of all your stuff. Stop going on online media and be content with really simple pleasures. And you'll be more happy. Right? It's, it's a mantra of our day trying to figure out why we are so uh, profoundly unhappy. And this stress, they say, is making you unhappy for two basic reasons. One is that your life is just simply too cluttered. So there are actually some aspects in your life that you, uh, you derive joy from, you find happiness in. But because you've committed to so many things, you don't actually get to focus and spend as much time there as you would like. It's A. B is the basic reality that options tend to make us unhappy. Too many options causes stress and it causes a kind of remorse after the, after the decision. Um, I love to go... Uh, uh, things like, um, I think of something like an international flight. And they hand you the menu, and there's two, maybe three options. And I think this is so simple. There's a restaurant near the town that I grew up in, and uh, it was run out of an old house, and it was uh, run by a couple. It was very small. They had only a set seating every night. And you walked in, and you only had two options in every category. It's so simple. Right? And then you go somewhere else, right, to some national chain restaurant, and you don't get handed a menu, you get handed a book. And there are 75 options. And suddenly there's a new level of stress. What am I going to choose? And you have to start not even between like, do I want A or B, but do I want breakfast, lunch, or dinner? And then you have to go in that. Now, not only is that more stressful to make that decision, but it's then more stressful after the fact, right? If you have an option between two things, you don't generally think to yourself, I wonder if I would have been more happy with the other item. Right? They're really different. And you're usually pretty sure you made a good decision. But if you've got this book of a menu, you think afterwards, you know, I wonder if I should have gone with breakfast. Or I should have gone with the soup. And so you have this remorse, this questioning of, did I make the decision that would produce as much happiness as possible? And these are all factors that play into right, the clutter of our life, the uh, overwhelming notion of options that we have in almost every category of our life, and as a result of our lack of happiness. Now, what does that have to do with John 15 this morning? Well, I'd assert to you that in the same way that clutter prevents our happiness, right? I think there's a basic notion of truth there uh, that is very reasonable, right? Now, the Bible doesn't promise happiness, but it does promise joy, right? In fact, that's the very intent, or one of the intents of what Jesus is saying here. If you look at John 15... And you look at verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Right? Jesus desires for you to experience a fullness of joy. That fullness of joy comes as a result of fruit-bearing discipleship. But it, our lives are very cluttered. Cluttered in a way, I'm not suggesting it gets in the way of our happiness per se, but cluttered in a way that it gets in the way of our actual discipleship, of focusing on what Jesus calls us to pay attention to is most important. And as a result of that clutter, we, don't, we aren't engaged in discipleship in the way that we should be. As a result of not being engaged in discipleship in the way we should be, we don't bear the fruit that Jesus calls us to. And as a result, we lack the joy that he promises. So this is what we're talking about. We're starting five, a five-week consideration of discipleship and talking about over the next five weeks how we as a church are going to be more focused on developing ourselves as true disciples. Part of that requires that we focus on what Jesus is calling us to and understand that we have 
ridiculously cluttered lives that distract us significantly from being true disciples, from focusing on what Jesus says will bring us joy. And maybe our lack of joy, if you experience a lack of joy, is the result of not really being a fruit-bearing disciple. Well, let's press into our passage and understand better what that means. The metaphor at hand is a rich one. Uh, Jesus is the vine, you are the branches, and God is the vine dresser or the gardener. And uh, what seems to be the case, according to verse 2, which says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So God is the vine dresser, is the one who is responsible for pruning. And pruning seems to be a necessity, right? The the, uh, stated purpose of pruning in verse 2 is that you would bear more fruit. Okay. Well, what is the nature of pruning? And not many of us are very necessarily very familiar with vines. Some of you may be. I had to do some reading this week to uh, educate myself on the nature of a vine. Right? And of course, what are we talking about in the ancient world? The vine that mattered and the vine that's a consistent image in Scripture is the grapevine. The vine that produces fruit for the production of wine, which is the standard drink in the ancient world. Right? Because it makes sure that the water uh, doesn't make you sick. Right? The alcohol in the water is safe to drink. So this is what we're talking about, a grapevine that bears fruit, and that fruit is used to produce wine. Now, apparently, a vine isn't a very sensible plant. If it is not pruned, right, if branches are not cut away, and the growth is not directed, then the vine, the branches, will grow in on themselves and become increasingly gnarled. And as it becomes increasingly gnarled, it will bear less fruit and ultimately not be worth very much at all. And so pruning is necessary to make uh, growth happen in the right direction so that the branches don't grow into themselves. And so the energy is directed toward the production of fruit, right? not towards the production of endless branches. Right? The, more, the better pruning you do, the better grape harvest you're going to have. Apparently. You might think, well, why would you not prune then? Well, if you go and look at some of these sites that grape growers and winemakers have and are talking about, it's actually quite remarkable Lots of people are reluctant to prune the branches of the vine. And you might think, why? Well, one winemaker was saying constantly, right, he sees people who are not producing good grapes and therefore good wine, and it's because they're not pruning. So there are two basic reasons people don't prune. So one is they're afraid of cutting the wrong spot. You know, if you're not very experienced, you come and you look at this vine and you think, where am I, where am I supposed to cut? Which branches need to come off? Which branches should stay? The other reason is that they're afraid of cutting too much. Once you start cutting, when do you stop? What is the appropriate amount to remove from the vine? These two questions keep people from actually pruning the vine, which actually ruins the vine and the fruit that uh, that is produced. Now, one of the things that we need to understand in this image of the vine is that this is an image that was used all the time in the Old Testament... For Israel. Israel was the vine of God, taken out of Egypt, according to Psalm 80, and planted and cultivated by God the gardener. In fact, during the Jewish revolt from 68 to 70 AD, right, when Jew, uh, the Jews were revolting against Rome, they minted their own currency, right, 
One of the only times. And they make a coin. They say, this coin is going to be our money, not Rome's. And what image are we going to put on it to represent our identity? They put the vine on it. This is who we are. Right? We're God's planted vine. What do you think Jesus is saying when he shows up and in 15.1 says, I am the true vine? It's a harsh critique. It's judgment of Israel. It's saying you have failed to be the vine that God has intended for you to be. You have failed to produce the fruit that you were intended to produce. I am taking your role. I become the true vine. Well, why did Israel fail? Well, because they did not trust in the vine dresser. They were not interested in submitting to the pruning of God. And so when we don't submit to the pruning of God, we essentially say we're taking pruning into our own hands. But who wants to take the knife to themselves? Right? Where do you cut? How much do you cut? Cutting isn't a pleasant activity. And so Israel failed. Right? They couldn't possibly prune themselves in the way that God intended to prune them. And so as a result, they did not grow in health. They did not produce fruit. And eventually, they would be judged. Do you submit to the pruning of God? I think, you know, if we read this and take it seriously, not only should we talk about submission, but do you cry out to God to be pruned? Right? It's the only way that you will be enabled to bear more fruit. And if that is not occurring, right, in what ways do you think you're going to take responsibility for your own pruning? Right? Whether running to a bookshelf or running to a counselor, right? Those can all be good things, but they can also be ways in which we avoid submitting to the knife of the vine dresser. And in that, we escape world change. Now, this is incredibly serious because if you look at verse 6, and please note with me, like, let's be very clear. Jesus is speaking to the insiders. This isn't a threat to someone who is an unbeliever. Jesus is speaking to those who are part of God's people. Right? Everybody's a branch in this metaphor. But some branches produce fruit and others don't. And those that don't, in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, and he's, uh, in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. You know what Jesus is holding out is saying, listen, if you aren't going to be pruned by the Father, you're not going to bear fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, you're not a worthwhile branch. And the outcome for branches that aren't bearing any fruit is to be pruned away, cleaned off the vine, and thrown into the fire. It's a scary picture. It's one we should take very seriously, and the question should immediately be, say, okay, how do I get more serious about submitting to the knife of the Father? How do I yearn for and submit to his pruning that I might bear more fruit and take my fruit bearing seriously? Well, first thing you know is that uh, submitting is not, it's not something that you have to do. It's much more about, about a relationship that you have, to, you have to sit in and be faithful in. And we have to examine the nature of faith. Some of you think about faith, right? And you, may, you may not use these words, but if you really examine your heart, faith to you is kind of like a rope being suspended over a canyon. And you're hanging on, right? And you think, I have faith that God's going to come rescue me. But until he does, I'm responsible to hang on. And I'm, going, I'm hanging here just waiting. 
And this is faith. And if I let go, that's a lack of faith. And anyone who demonstrates a lack of faith is destroyed. That's not really a biblical notion of faith. A biblical notion of faith is much more akin to the notion of allowing yourself to be embraced by someone who loves you without running out of that embrace. Now, frankly, that's much harder. It's very difficult and very vulnerable. Just think about a child. Skins a knee or is wounded by a friend. Crawls up into the arms of a parent. Weeping and vulnerable and sits there and is comforted. But eventually the comfort makes them feel better. And suddenly what do they do? Well, this is kind of weak and vulnerable. And I wouldn't want any of my friends or my brothers or sisters to see me in this place of vulnerability. So what am I going to do? I'm going to jump down and get back to life because now I'm ready to handle it. It's that temptation for us to always be jumping out of the loving arms of the Father. This is why we're called in part not only to abide in Jesus, but as we'll see, to abide in His love. And to run back into the world. This is why many of you, if you grow up, you know, the more dysfunctional home you grow up in, the harder it is to understand right, being loved in a way in which you sit in that love and that that is the expression of faith. You have made your way through life by basically saying, I'm going to be strong enough and tough enough. I hang from the rope. And I like that version of faith better because it makes me strong. It makes me tough. That's not what's on hand here, and I'll show you why it's not. Because what does Jesus say in verse 3? Already you are clean. Right? This nature of faith, this nature of being a branch in the vine, isn't that you accomplish a cleaning of yourself or a making of yourself that is worthy for God. Jesus has already declared you clean because of the word that you have received. It's not about that. Not only that, right? that he has made you clean, But your task, first and foremost, is not that you go out and accomplish something. It's not even first and foremost that you bear fruit. Bearing fruit is a result of, verse 4, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. Right. The call to us, first and foremost, is to abide. To be embraced by the love of Christ and as a result to trust in the pruning of the Father. And as a result, fruit really is born out of that relationship. So this is the nature of faith. This is the nature of our salvation. That God has been gracious to us and he's engrafted us into the vine that was Israel. You don't have to prove yourself worthy to be a branch. You are a branch. Now what we're talking about is how do you become a really rich, fruit-bearing branch that knows the joy that Christ speaks of. How does that actually play out? Well, it plays out, if we look at verse 8, in terms of evaluating our fruit, right? Not that we have made ourselves clean or made ourselves a branch, but now we say, do we really abide in the love of Christ? And if we do in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The fruit bearing that Christ would work in and through you actually becomes the proof now of your discipleship. It's not a proof to God. God knows quite well where you sit as a disciple. It is a proof to you yourself and to others so that you would take stock. Are you bearing fruit? If the answer is no, then you should ask, am I really a disciple? 
If you are bearing fruit, then you celebrate it and say you delight in abiding in Christ and you pray that God would prune you further that you might bear more fruit. So we need to have a good idea of what this fruit is. What should it look like and how should we be looking for it in our lives and how should we be intent on saying yes to the characteristics of discipleship that are fruit bearing and no to all the other clutter in our lives. That's how we find joy. So real quick, let's run through the passage. Could you name seven characteristics off the top of your head of a disciple? Characteristics that Jesus himself identifies? If we, don't, if we can't describe the picture of discipleship that Jesus gives to us, how can we pretend to be serious about discipleship? So what's the picture? Number one, verse 8, a disciple bears fruit. Now, <clears throat> bears fruit can refer to a number of different things, but in the Gospels, it primarily refers to making other disciples. Right? So we might think of, you think of bearing fruit, and you think, oh, it's the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 that Paul describes. No, not so much. Right? It's not that that's wrong. It's not that, that those are good things. But that's not the way that the Gospels tend to approach bearing fruit. It's making of disciples. It's the word going forth. It's Jesus' command to go into all the world and make disciples of all peoples. Right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the nature of bearing fruit. So, number one, uh, are you making disciples? Have you participated in any way in someone that you can name that has grown as a disciple as a result of your connection or influence upon their life? This is the fruit that we're talking about. Number two, verses four, five, seven, nine, and ten. Right? It's almost as if Jesus would say, let's just make sure you get this bit. Right? In each of those verses, uh, the verb is to abide, right? to, to rest, to sit in the power and the authority and particularly the love of Christ. Now, this is particularly important for any true disciple because you will never submit to the knife of a pruner unless you believe that pruner loves you. And you know this relationally, right? Someone comes to you and says, hey, I have something hard to say to you. Well, if you think, man, I don't trust you and I think you're jealous of me and you want to undercut me, Right? You, you don't have any time or bandwidth to listen to what that person has to say. But if the person comes, who comes to you and says, I have something hard to say to you, is a close friend and you're utterly confident in their love for you, then you, say, you steal yourself and say, okay, I want to hear it because I believe you love me. If you do not have confidence and believe in the love of the Father, right? the love of Christ that he bids you to come and abide in, to sit and be content in, then you will not, you won't let him prune you. You'll resist it. Number three, verse 10. That we uh, would keep the commands of Jesus. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Right? To know the commands of Jesus, to abide in them, this refers certainly to all of his commands, but what does Jesus say are the most important summarizing commands? To love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Are you being or seeking to be faithful to those commands that you would actually abide in the love of Christ? Jesus says, you want to know how to abide in my love? Obey. Do we not sometimes make it so complicated? You want to abide in the love of Jesus? 
Obey. Where are you not obeying? Where can you move into his love? Number four. In verse 10, the notion is not only that we keep his commandments, but notice how Jesus phrases it. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Right? Notice that our obeying and abiding is a representation or imitation of Jesus' own abiding uh, or obeying and abiding in the Father's love. If you look at verse 12, it's the same notion. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Our love for each other is supposed to be a reflection of Jesus' love for us. And so a disciple imitates the life of Jesus. A disciple tells the story of Jesus by his or her life. And in that we share life with the world. All right. So we're up to four. Number five. Verses 12 and uh, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. Now Jesus has just finished telling us, commanding us, that we should love one another as he has loved us. How has he loved us? He's laid down his life for us. In what ways does your life demonstrate the love of Christ by being sacrificed on behalf of someone else? Do you, are you willing to lay down your life, to take a hit for a friend, to sacrifice significant time or energy or money that actually echoes the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf? And in this, to know his love and to express his love. Now, number six, verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. A disciple knows the will of the master. Now, this doesn't mean that you understand everything that God is up to. But you understand you're invited into the story of redemption. You're invited in to know God's agenda. And I think there's something more than that at hand, which is this. As you go through life and see the hardships that befall people and experience difficulty and are challenged, you don't think it's chaos. And you don't necessarily conclude that God is mean or unloving. But you can say, there's a pruning at work here. But I don't pretend to understand all of the pruning. But it's something that enables me and those I love in the body of Christ to bear more fruit. That's the master's agenda. Seven, and lastly, is verse 16. Which states, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You may ask the Father, whatever, uh, or whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. It's a huge promise. It's something that can be taken out of context, but it certainly communicates to us that a disciple is someone who is praying, who is speaking to the Father, and who expects to see results as, or out of those prayers that the Father is going to grant that which you ask in his name that is according to the master's will. All right. Now you have a picture of a disciple. Right? Not, not conclusive or comprehensive in terms of having plumbed the depths of scripture, but according to John 15, what should be true of you? What should be true of a disciple of Jesus? One, 
A disciple bears fruit. Two, a disciple abides in Christ, particularly in the love of Jesus. Number three, a disciple keeps the commands of Jesus. Number four, a disciple imitates Jesus' life. Number five, a disciple looks like Jesus, or loves like Jesus, sorry. Number six, a disciple knows the Master's will. And number seven, a disciple prays and expects to hear answers to those prayers. What does it mean to pursue those characteristics? To really develop, to cultivate them in a way that we know this joy that Jesus speaks of. That we become uh, a people who bear more fruit. Now this is what we're very intent on as a church. It's what we're turning our attention to. And it's the how of it is the thrust of today's congregational meeting. right? Which is at 10 and I hope you'll stay for it. But a picture of what we're talking about and how we hope to grow might be found in a guy named Chip Bullingsworth. Chip is a, or was a pub, is a pub owner in England, right? He, uh, he was the guy who was the life of every party. He, um, he loved more than anything being at his pub and engaging the community and seeing everyone celebrate life or disappear from life, as the case may be, at his pub. Until he uh, contracted a very rare disease that ended up, uh, that resulted in uh, the, um, uh, the removal of, his, of, of the, uh, the extremities of his four limbs. Right? So he becomes a man without hands or feet. Um, and of course, sinks into a deep depression and says, how am I going to navigate life? What, you know, what is moving forward for me? Now, Chip was a fun guy before he was uh, afflicted by this disease. Said he would go through, uh, you know, at least uh, a bottle of wine and maybe a six-pack a day. That was his normal routine. And he recognized that he was distant from his family. He was distant from his kids. And he begins to process life. He says, am I going to embrace life or am I simply going to check out? It's the basic question he has to ask as a result of what's befallen him. And Chip decides that he has undergone a pruning. A pruning that's entirely unpleasant, by which he becomes very grateful because he recognizes that he was utterly asleep and he never would have woken up if it had not been for that pruning. And Chip goes on and he becomes, his wife was an interior decorator, and with her help and getting computer software that enables him to work, he became a pub designer. Now designed pubs all over England and is quite sought after. He doesn't drink, and he loves life, and he's more present than ever before for his wife and for his children. And here's the funny question. If you asked Chip if he could go back and get his hands and feet back, he would say, absolutely not. I wouldn't even consider the question. It's so far, he so values what the pruning has affected in his life and the transformation and now who he is that he would never even consider going back to have his feet and hands back. That's a picture of what we are called to. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe He loves you to the degree that you're willing to ask Him to prune you? And as a result of that pruning, will you embrace the fruit that the disciple is called to bear? And this is something that will require us to labor together in it. But in it is the, the greatest promise of all, which is that we would know the joy of Christ. <coughs> And there is nothing that surpasses it. Let's ask for God's grace in it.
Father, we praise you this morning and thank you that you are the vine dresser. That you love us enough to prune us and there is much that needs to be cut away. Would you be, uh, would you be kind to us and merciful to us by cutting us? By pruning us as branches that we might bear more fruit. Would you forgive us because our minds and our hearts have become so cluttered? We think that we can identify where we will find joy. And we are infatuated with notions of happiness. And instead, would you call us to the one source of joy, to the one source of life? Would you call us and encourage us, Holy Spirit, to abide in the love of Jesus? And by abiding in this great love, submit ourselves to your knife. And would you make Rockwall Presbyterian Church a place of greater fruit bearing? Because we are more committed to our discipleship than ever before. We pray that you would be glorified in this, that the world uh, would be would marvel at the love that is on display, because it is, it is the very love that you have shown to us. We pray that you would encourage us and that you would equip us in this as we come to be nourished by you and on you this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.